You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Chapter 2, Elias The deserter will be dead before dawn. His tracks zigzag like a struck deer's in the dust of Sarah's catacombs. The tunnels have done him in. The hot air is too heavy down here, the smells of death and rot too close. The tracks are more than an hour old by the time I see them. The guards have a scent now, poor bastard. If he's lucky, he'll die in the chase. If not, don't think about it. Hide the backpack. Get out of here. Skulls crunch as I shove a pack loaded with food and water into a wall crypt. Helene would give me hell if she could see how I'm treating the dead. But then, if Helene finds out why I'm down here in the first place, desecration will be the least of her complaints. She won't find out, not until it's too late. Guilt pricks at me, but I shove it away. Helene is the strongest person I know. She'll be fine without me. For what feels like the hundredth time, I look over my shoulder. The tunnel is quiet. The deserter led the soldiers in the opposite direction, but safety's an illusion I know never to trust. I work quickly, piling bones back in front of the crypt to cover my trail, my senses primed for anything out of the ordinary. One more day of this. One more day of paranoia and hiding and lying. One day until graduation. Then I'll be free. As I rearrange the crypt's skulls, the hot air shifts like a bear waking from hibernation. The smells of grass and snow cut through the fetid breath of the tunnel. Two seconds is all I have to step away from the crypt and kneel, examining the ground as if there might be tracks here. Then she is at my back. Elias, what are you doing down here? Didn't you hear? There's a deserter loose. I keep my attention fixed on the dusty floor. Beneath the silver mask that covers me from forehead to jaw, my face should be unreadable. But Helene Akala and I have been together nearly every day of the 14 years we've been training at Blackcliff Military Academy. She can probably hear me thinking. She comes around me silently, and I look up into her eyes, as blue and pale as the warm waters of the southern islands. My mask sits atop my face, separate and foreign, hiding my features as well as my emotions. But Hell's mask clings to her like a silvery second skin, and I can see the slight furrow in her brow as she looks down at me. Relax, Elias, I tell myself. You're just looking for a deserter. Saba Tahir is the author of An Ember in the Ashes. Her new novel and sequel to Ember in the Ashes is A Torch Against the Night. Thank you for joining me, Saba. Thank you for having me. These are remarkable fantasy novels, and they take place in what is called, I think, a second world. This isn't obviously the earth that we know, at least when we meet it. There may be some uh, connection that evolves through the uh, length of the series. Talk about creating that second separate world and the decision to tell your story in a world that's not ours. So, um, yes, this is an alternate universe is, is sort of what uh, we usually call them if, if in, the, in the fantasy world, I guess. And I decided to write in an alternate universe because I had actually tried writing a book in our world. I was in my early 20s and I was trying to write a book based on my childhood. And I used to call my mother and complain to her about how hard it was to write this book. And I think after listening to me whine about it for many, many weeks, she finally got sick of it. And she said, why don't you write a fantasy? You used to love fantasy. 
And my response to her was, I can't write a fantasy. Nobody will take me seriously, which is, of course, the exact response that a foolish 22-year-old would give to her mother's very good advice. But about five years later, four years later, when I was working at the Post, uh, the Washington Post, I was working on the international desk, and I came across this, this story, and it was about women in Kashmir who lose their fathers and brothers and sons to the local uh, military forces who throw these men into prison and don't always give a reason why. And that story really bothered me and stayed with me because I have two older brothers and I'm very close to them. And I I wanted to write a story about a girl who loses her family in the same way, but I wanted to set it in a world where she could fight back. And I felt like if I set that in our world, this girl would just be stuck like these women in the story I read. She would just have to deal with the fact that her family member was gone forever and there was nothing she could do. So initially, the the fantasy element really came from my own frustration with our world and from this advice I had gotten years before from my mother, which was write a fantasy book. You mentioned that you had liked fantasy as a child. What fantasy did you read as a child? When did you start reading and why did you like it? I started reading the Random House Book of Fairy Tales when I was about six or seven. And at the time, I actually hated reading. I couldn't stand it, um, probably because I was bad at it. (laughs) But the Random House Book of Fairy Tales is this book I read over and over and over again. And I really credit that book as a book that helped me learn to read and enjoy reading. And it was this book of fairy tales. And I related to it because, you know, so many of these characters in these fairy tales were sort of outcasts or they were treated differently because they were, you know, whatever, they were poor or they, you know, they had these horrible stepsisters or you know whatever the case might be. And I related to that feeling of being an outcast because in my own hometown, as a person of color in a predominantly white town, I did feel like an outcast. And then as I grew older, I started getting into you know, more adult fantasy, like I read The Sword of Shannara by Terry Brooks. I read The Dragon Riders of Pern by Anne McCaffrey. I read Tolkien, you know, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. I read sort of that classic like 80s, (laughs) you know, a lot of these sort of 80s and early 90s fantasies. I read David Eddings. Mm -hmm. I read Neil Gaiman. I read the uh, Sandman series. So that's, that's really what got me into fantasy. I really remember getting some of those books um, as paperbacks and seeing them. And they just had such a heft. The 80s fantasy seemed to have a lot of influence. Uh, were there other things you were reading as well at this time? or I would say comic books were big for me. Um, I read X-Men. I read Thor. I read graphic no- some graphic novels. Sandman is the one that I remember, though I should go back and reread it. It's been probably like, I don't know, 20 years <laughs> since I read it. It's been forever. <laughs> All of those things had an impact. And then film, too, you know, stuff like Star Wars, which I watched over and over again. And like, you know, some of like the horror movies um, of, you know, the early like 80s, which I probably shouldn't have watched because I was a little kid, but my (laughs) brothers would watch them. So then I would end up watching them, too. All of that kind of mixed together. But I would say the number one, the number one thing was, you know, these these fantasy books. I, I would just read them over and over again. You know, I would read the whole series then I would go back and start again and read it again. I really love the world you've created in this book, and it's a generous world. You seem to uh, to like even the characters who are not so likable. When you created this world, did you design the world first or the characters, or did you design them side by side as you wrote? So I designed the characters first, um, and then I, I sort of I write by iteration, so I layered the world in. Mm-hmm. Um, I would start by figuring out, okay, you know, what is this character 
want? What's their ultimate goal? Who are they? Um, And once I figured that out, I would start kind of building the rest of the world around them. So the idea that this was, this was, you know, an ember in the ashes is, is very much inspired by ancient Rome, just in terms of sort of how society is structured and these, these different groups. And, and when I was writing it, that's something that came to me a little bit later. It didn't appear to me when I first started. And when I first started, I wasn't quite sure what kind of world I wanted. I just thought, okay, desert, because I grew up in a desert. So I figured, write what you know, right? <laughs> um, and then as I went on, I started realizing, okay, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to incorporate ancient Rome into this. I think I'm going to incorporate some of the sort of North African and South Asian and Middle Eastern myth of jinn and efforts. I'm going to incorporate that into it. And that was every draft I would add something new. Uh, what desert did you live in growing up? I grew up in the Mojave Desert in Southern California. Wow, that's that's pretty deserted. There's not a lot to do there. No wonder you had a lot of time to, to, to read. read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this book is your decision to write it going back and forth. We meet at the very beginning. We meet Elias and, and Laya. Uh, tell us about creating those characters and that kind of dynamic that exists between going back and forth between the two voices. Sure. So I wanted to go back and forth between these two characters, I think a lot because of my journalism background and sort of being trained up into this this belief that um, a story can be told from so many different perspectives. And all of those perspectives can be true in the eye of the beholder. And I wanted to sort of tell this inside-outside narrative of, you know, you have a girl who is a second-class citizen in this very brutal world, and she views the ruling class as these horrible, horrible people, you know, en masse. They're all terrible. And then you have a boy of the ruling class, a soldier of the ruling class. And he, of course, is much more complicated than just being, you know, a villainous guy. And so that was a very sort of simple way for me to look at the story from more than one perspective and try to kind of show my reader the the different ways of, of viewing this particular world. The characters came to me pretty close together, so I thought of Laia first, and she was pretty easy. You know, she was a rather cowardly 17-year-old, and that's not very far from what I was as a 17-year-old. You know, I, I had no no uh, guts at all. I was, I was not, you know, no nerves of steel for this one. I was a very, very sort of scared. I didn't want to stand up for myself or or ever, you know, fight back. I wasn't, I was very conflict-averse, you know. <laughs> and then I, you know, so then in creating Elias, I actually struggled because, you know, he's this fearless 20-year-old soldier. And I'm like, that is not who I am. But of course, this is the, the joy of being a formal journalist is I was like, okay, you know, how do I figure this out? I know I'll interview, I'll interview warriors because I'm not one, but I should go find some. So I found these sort of modern day warriors who I ended up interviewing. And I talked to them about, you know, really ask them about their daily life and, you know, their personal life and, and what it's like and what's the scariest thing that happened to them and what's the greatest thing and why do they do this? But the goal of those interviews was really trying to understand what it is to have the soul of a warrior because that's what I wanted to capture for Elias. So I'm very, very thankful for that that journalism background, which came in handy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Where did you find modern-day warriors at your disposal to I, um, Easier said than done. Uh, you know, I interviewed a police sergeant. I interviewed a police officer who had fought in the Battle of Fallujah. He used to be in the Army. I interviewed a West Point cadet, and I interviewed an FBI agent, a woman who was on a violent gangs task force in San Jose. And they are you know, the epitome of warriorhood, <laughs> these, <laughs> these people. And they were very giving of their time and they just 
told me about their lives. And it was, I was able to kind of hear their voices as I was writing from Elias's point of view and later in the second book from Helene's point of view. I think that's very interesting. Yes, as as you were saying this, I could see now from the uh, female FBI uh, agent where Helene came from. It's such an uh, an interesting uh, dynamic there. You've uh, set up a a kind of a, a love triangle, mm-hmm. and it's often when we see love triangles set up, we instantly can figure out what the resolution is. And I've got to be honest, it's not. Maybe I'm a little bit dense in the romance area, but it's not perfectly obvious where, who's going to, which corner of the triangle is going to win out in this in this battle. Sure. Um, and there's sort of, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm an una, unashamed lover of love triangles. So there's kind of, there's kind of two love mm-hmm. triangles in, in, in the book. There's Elias and these two people he's interested in. And then there's Laia and these two people she's interested in. And it's not really meant to be the focus of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, that's absolutely the adventure. But it is something that's going on in these characters' lives. And it's absolutely something that um, is, is really fun to write because I myself don't – I know who I like together, but the story doesn't always let me have my way. You know, sometimes a story demands to be told in a specific way, and I might actually be grumpy about it and be like, but <laughs> I really want so-and-so to end up together. And, you know, the, the story is just like, nope, that's not, that's not what happens. So. When you're creating a world, there's so many different things that go into it. And you started with your characters to kind of tell you as it guides for the world. But talk about creating, um, because eventually you, you have, and we see the hierarchies for the school, for the government, for the different societies. Uh, that's a lot of uh, detail to go and create um, for, for these characters. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a very stratified society, but I think with world building, the more, it's sort of this fine balance. You have to add a lot of detail, right? Because you want readers to immerse themselves. My favorite books are the ones where when I look up, I'm confused and I'm like, wait, where I, where am I? Am I in my world or am I in this world? Or, or you know, the books you read where, you know, the, the emotions in them seep into you. I still remember reading The Road um, and and, and sort of coming out of that book and thinking everyone was like trying to get my food um, and, you know, was trying to kill me and being super paranoid for like two days. And that's sort of the emotion that, you know, I want to I want to go for when I'm writing is um, is this feeling of um, complete immersion in this world. And I think you do that through detail and not always detail like, you know, OK, this is what a market looks like. But. The, the society itself, um, how is it stratified? Um, you know, how do people treat each other? It's not just about how, you know, we have two groups. We have the scholars and we have the marshals and we have a few other groups, but those are the main two in the first book. It's not just about, you know, how the marshals treat the scholars or or the opposite. It's, it's also how the scholars treat each other. It's about how the marshals treat each other. It's about how you have this main character, Elias, who's, you know, what's called an illustrian. He's sort of the equivalent of a patrician um, in, in ancient Rome. And then, you know, you have his his enemy who's of a lower class. He's, he's a plebeian. And how do they treat each other? And how does the way their society is structured, how does that play into all the decisions that they make? All of those things are really fun to play with. I probably could have written like a thousand page book on it. <laughs> I did have to rein myself in. <laughs> <and sort of laughs> control. 
I thought you did a great job bringing yourself in and keeping like a toe-tapping plot going the whole time. I mean, these people, it's out of the frying pan into the fire from the first page of the first book to the last page of the second book. And that makes me think, too, though there are two draws when you're reading fantasy, two things that propel you to read it. One is the plot, the peril that the characters are in, and there's plenty of peril for these characters to be in, and and it's really that's very intense and fun to read. But there's also the uh, through line of getting to know the world. So we want to read ahead as much to understand what's happening in the world itself as as well as what's happening to the characters. So talk about balancing those two kind of uh, tension draws, you know, revelations of the world versus revelations as what the hell is going to happen to your characters. Well, I think, again, it really goes back to world building. Um, I try to I try to have a clear sense of all my all my secrets, you know, all the secrets of my world. What what are they? Who do they belong to? Who's going to find out which things will never be revealed and which things will. And then as I write, I'm sort of trying to figure out, okay, when do I reveal these things? And how do I make people continue to ask the question? One of the big questions in the first book is a question that the main character actually never asks, which is, who is Elias's father? And Elias actually doesn't care much about his father. He has decided that he is who he is and he has the people he cares about and, you know, his father is gone. And so, who, who you know, his father's identity is not something that matters to him. And yet one of the most interesting things when the book came out was hearing people say, are you ever going to tell us who Elias's father is? And realizing that this was a question that the character had never asked, but that had sort of ended up permeating the book anyway. Um, and I think that that comes from just you know, sort of leaving, leaving things unsaid and not, not having Elias ask that question and, and just having him go about his life. And as readers, we can see that he was, he, you know, he was influenced by his mother, absolutely, who is a more villainous character. And he was influenced by where he was raised and this world he's raised in. But maybe there are things about him that are related to that person who's off screen, who he never asks about you know, which is his father. And so that's sort of a small example of the way I, I try to, to keep readers curious without like throwing things in their face or, or demanding <laughs> that they ask certain questions. Um, one of the things that, um, too, is that these characters find themselves uh, facing like life forks instead of life forests rather than like they will find places where they have to make a very clear decision here or here mm-hmm. and it's not that they're heading into this forest where they're completely oh I don't know what I'm supposed to do and I think that that's an uh, requires some careful plotting do you find yourself uh, that events in the plot that you put in the plot from the first book uh, cause problems in the second book or, and are causing may cause problems out ripple out towards as the series goes on I think you know I um I I planned much of the plot out when I first started so I worked on An Ember in the Ashes for six years um, before I sold it mm-hmm. and in that six years I planned a lot of the second and the third and the fourth books out not not you know details but just sort of those really those secrets again those sort of very specific things that you sort of realize as you go along and you're reading the series and I I planned out some of the plot points so that I wouldn't end up in that situation. Of course, I still did. 
I I was sort of um, uh, uh, angsting over the beginning of book three because I kind of I need my characters to be in one place, but I've kind of put them in a position where it's going to be very difficult for them to get to that place. And it's like, ah, you know, why did I have to do that? You know, why couldn't I have just, you know, made things easier for myself? So but but that I think is the joy of writing fantasy is then sort of figuring out your way through those situations and, and, and figuring out how they can affect the actual storyline and trying to turn, um, you know, I guess lemons into lemonade to some degree, trying to turn <laughs> what should have been a problem into your next big plot piece. I, I think uh, I was impressed by the uh, length of the two books, first two books, in that they're pretty much the exact same length. And that kind of feature creep is un is, or I guess lack of feature creep is very unusual since uh, the typical fantasy series starts out at three hundred pages, goes to, creeps to four hundred fifty pages, <laughs> then to six hundred fifty, then to nine hundred fifty, then to book part one and part two. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you have a better hold over where you're going? I would love to say that you know I am just super smart and know exactly what I'm doing, but that just happened to sort of work out. Um, <laughs> I also had a very good editor who was mm. like, let's do a little chopping. And he, he helped me sort of see where the story needed to be cut and where I had extra, extra. Um, and so then we went, by the time we were done with all that cutting, it happened to be that the, the story was very close to the first book in length and we felt like that was a good place to, to leave it. I Well, I would agree. Now, one of the things that's, you mentioned... Um, Rome as being the inspiration for this world. Uh, did you end up uh, doing lots of research on how Rome actually worked, or was this based on um, memories of impressions of uh, uh, Rome learned in high school and maybe college? I, you know, it's funny because I, I remember my first, the first sort of interest I had in Rome was when. I had to do this ridiculous report in 10th grade about a, a fiction, uh, sorry, a, a historical figure. And we had to either act out like five minutes of the figure's life or we had to write like a 10 page paper. So, of course, I chose to act out five minutes of the figure's life and I chose Nero. Um, I didn't know that much about him when I chose him. I just knew, knew that he was like super crazy. I thought it'd be fun to act him out. So I actually ended up acting out Nero's suicide as part of my my 10th grade uh, English class uh, assignment. And that's when I actually got really interested in like the Julio-Claudian dynasty and in ancient Rome. And I didn't I didn't study classics or anything like that. But I did do a fair amount of research. Um, and it was it was sparked by that initial interest in Nero and sort of these really like backstabby families and, and characters. And I did some research, like I, I read <clears throat> Masters of Rome, um, and I read I, Claudius, it's like fictional research. Um, and then I did a bunch of, on you know, like online and library research where I was trying to figure out, okay, how are these societies divided? And, you know, how did you become a citizen? And, and so much of that stuff just never made it into the book. I also, my husband is obsessed with ancient Rome, so it was really useful to have him around because he has <laughs> studied it. And so I would ask him questions, and he was sort of a walking encyclopedia I like the elements of the fantastic in this book. And what's nice is, is that you don't just lay them all into us at once. In fact, some of them are referred to as bits of legend that the characters have just uh, don't even believe in until may, perhaps they encounter them. Could you talk about just creating the these elements of the fantastic? Did you put them in at the beginning? Is that something you really wanted in or is that something you brought in only reluctantly? I really wanted the fantastical to be in it. In fact, the fantastical was a much bigger part of my early drafts. Mm. And as I was going through, I started sort of winnowing it out because I realized the reader is going to discover 
these creatures and this this sort of supernatural world the way the characters are going to discover it, which is to say little by little. Because in the world of Ember, this sort of supernatural side of Jin and efforts, it's waking up. It's been asleep for a long time. It's been dormant for a long time. And now it's finally waking up. And so in the same way that our our characters are starting to say, hey, you know, there's stuff I'm seeing that's not making sense. It doesn't fit into my reality. I wanted the reader to experience that too. And as for where that came from, um, I blame my mom entirely. She used to tell me stories of Jin when I was a little girl and like scare the daylights out of me. And so I, I would remember those stories and then just sort of built on, on what she used to tell me. You know, it's interesting because in this book, uh, these characters, at one point in, in the first book, uh, she thinks of herself um, about uh, describing herself, and she says, my skin glows golden brown, hers is chalk white. And this is the first time we really encounter any kind of ethnicity in this book. And it, it struck me that ethnicity is such an interesting concept because and the reason that it's so fraught for humans is because it combines the uh, the virtues, as it were, of nature and nurture. And ethnicity is always, 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 uh, pretty much a fifty-fifty combination of both the, what genes you have, but also how how you're brought up. And I think that you do a really good job at conveying that sort of blindly in this book. You know, um, I wanted skin color to not be the dividing mm-hmm. factor in this book. So I have I have eye color, <laughs> you know, um, and I have ideology, and mm-hmm. that's sort of the, the the big difference. And and there are some groups that are darker skinned, absolutely. But in terms of the main two groups, I wanted them to actually. You know, I, I wanted skin color to not be the focus. So the scholars are sort of finer featured mm-hmm. and a little bit smaller physically. And then the marshals are bigger and have more sort of chiseled, more uh, patrician kind of features, I guess you could call them. And that's that's the big physical difference. Again, I figured if it was just divided by race only, you know, these people are white and these people are brown. I thought it would defeat the purpose for me of wanting to focus in more on how differently these two groups in mass view the world and that very much is nurture that's that's not nature you Mm -hmm. know that's that is how you're raised and what their parents taught them and the world they're surrounded by and the society and what the society they grow up in and what it tells them they are the scholar people in this book the, the sort of tragedy of them is that they're not scholars. Most of them can't read. They've lost that. It's a point of pride for their oppressors that, you know, these people still call themselves the scholars, but we've we've beat it out of them. And again, that's all that's all nurture. You know, it, it's interesting, too, the the power of the written word when you put when you uh, point up point out that these people that the scholars can't read I mean that's used to manipulate them and keep them in their place which is a very telling and important detail when it comes back to this world and you pick up the newspaper (laughs) absolutely Um, and you know it's also something that you know I think that so so many people in the United States are literate that I think that we forget how little power you have when you are illiterate and how literacy was used against 
our own, you know, groups of, within our own population, particularly slaves, not that long ago. Mm -hmm. um, and that that is a way to, that is probably one of the most powerful ways for an oppressor uh, to keep a population oppressed is by, by keeping them from learning, keeping them from reading, keeping them from going to school, keeping them from communicating with each other. But not the only way to keep Not the only way. <laughs> because <laughs> the, the masks in this group and the, the oppressors in this group, there's a lot of violence in this book. And one of the things I think I admire about this book is that it it admits that the violence is violent and that it's bad uh, and that beyond implying the characters identify um, these bad the the, the the worst of the marshals as, you know, rapists. And I think that uh, rape is not a word that often shows up uh, in fantasy novels, even though it's, I think, uh, implied far more often than it's actually used. Yeah, it was really important to me that I try to accurately portray what is essentially a war zone. Mm -hmm. And again, I think working at the Washington Post and, and reading story after story about what is happening in our world was very helpful in me figuring out how to do that, how to portray this war zone. I remember reading a story about refugees in Sudan, uh, refugee women, and how they would leave the refugee camp to get water, and they were always so afraid of um, these these militia these militiamen on horses who would come and kidnap them and rape them and kill them or kill their children or rape their children. I mean, it was really violent stuff, and this was just outside. The refugee camp. It's not like it was, you know, over out in the wilderness. Um, it was, it was terrifying, and and this was the primary concern of these women is is trying to to keep safe. It's something they had to think about constantly. What's always been sort of interesting to me is people refer to the world of Ember as a dystopian world, but every every act of violence in here I pulled from our own world. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> uh, as Kim Stanley Robinson once told me. We're living in a bad science fiction novel, Rick. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that uh, show Kurt Vonnegut or Philip K. Dick the way the world looks today, and they'd say, yeah, I'm pretty dystopian. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, at one point, uh, I, I like the, the character of Elias's uh, uh, grandfather. Mm -hmm. uh, he's really interesting, and he has a kind of a nobility about him, but also a hard-headed kind of violent guy. Talk about creating like the second tier of characters, because you want them to be memorable but not get in the way. For sure. I think that it's really important to have these secondary characters who are fully fleshed out. I... I learned that from J.K. Rowling. Mm. Um, I love the Harry Potter series, and I love the secondary characters in that series. I think she does them so, so well. And so I tried to sort of figure out what she did and, and, and tried, I don't know, successful or not, tried to emulate that to some degree by having characters who I had their whole histories figured out, their stories figured out, their desires, their wants, their motivations. And that doesn't all go in the book, of course, because mm -hmm. that would be crazy, um, but... But I know it, and I think that helps me write them in a more full way. You know, the character of Quinn Vitorius is one who, he is a man of contrast. He adores his grandson. He has major issues with his daughter. And he doesn't really consider the fact that, well, his son came, or his grandson came from his, his daughter. He sort of, he, he would rather kind of ignore that and just focus on how, how great 
you know his his grandson is <laughs> um and and yet at the same time he's not a, he's not foolish he's worried for his grandson he's worried for Elias he's he knows what his daughter is capable of and he is you would never admit that he's scared but he is scared for his grandson to some degree and that's the thing is that here's a man who thinks that scholars are worthless that they should absolutely be kept enslaved and yet he adores our main character, our hero, he loves him. And he's sort of one of the few adult figures in the book who, who really, who really loves, you know, what, who, what he sees as kind of his, his child or his, you know, his grandchild and who's a sort of a good figure. But of course I can't make him all good because that would be boring. <laughs> um, so, so we do have these sort of contrasts in him where, you know, part of, I, I, I hope that the reader's sort of looking at him being like, God, I wish you would change your politics. You know? <laughs> like you're such a cool guy. Like why can't you see that the stuff you think is just ridiculous? And I think part of it is sort of, you know, all of us have that experience of like, you know, that favorite like uncle or grandparent at a party who, you know, you love them, but then they say like the crazy, you know, they have the crazy <laughs> opinion about whatever and you're just like, "Ah," you know, and that's kind of I think to some degree that's that's where Quinn that Quinn reflects that that dynamic a little bit. Well, I think you said something really important just now that as readers were thinking, God, I wish you would think change your politics about the characters. And I think that's really important because uh, this book takes place in a very political world where polit- politics is being just abused <laughs> uh, just to ground so that one uh, group of rich people may ground the, the group of poorer and slightly less powerful people into the ground beneath their feet. And that's something that uh, feels, I think, a bit familiar to anybody who's, uh, you know, working for a living. Absolutely. Um, It's sort of sadly like the human condition. Um, (laughs) You know, you just look at there's so many countries in which this is the case, like all of them, you know. (laughs) Just Um, look around. Just look around. And, And that's why... Again, it it's sort of funny when people refer to the world as a, a, a fantasy dystopian world because it's like, no, it's not that different. And unless you want to say, well, we're living in a dystopia. <laughs> um, you know, and I think that, you know, with, with the second book in particular, with A Torch Against the Night, I was influenced in, in a large part by the, the European refugee crisis mm-hmm. um, and the Syrian refugee crisis and sort of what is happening there. Um, and this idea of large groups of people just fleeing because they have nowhere else to go. And I think the third book will touch on that, too, and sort of the after effects of something like that. And as I was as I was writing it and you know, knowing where this influence was coming from and sort of seeing it, it was just so tragic to me that I knew that there, there would be many people who made the connection, but there would be many people who would just think, wow, I'd hate to live in this world. Well, I <laughs> I think that's an interesting uh, thought that uh, using uh, fantasy to address human migration. And when you think about it, fantasy literature is absolutely the best genre within which to describe that because by virtue of the fact that you create worlds and factions within those worlds, you can show those kind of mass movements and political movements, I think, a lot more easily and deftly so that you can kind of leech out the uh, complicated politics that we each bring emotionally to the real world, and we can see it in a much more clearer manner. Yeah, and I think that's what I I like about fantasy is, you know, when I walk into a fantasy world, it is a little bit of a blank slate. Sometimes I think I know who I side with, 
And then I realize I, I don't know who I side with, and I've got to keep reading to find out who I side with. And the fact that I even want to have a side <laughs> is really interesting. And, 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 and also uh, another sort of example of the human condition of this desire to ally ourselves with one or the other, maybe not realizing sometimes, and I do this, you know, that maybe neither side is, is particularly good, and maybe I have to be okay with that. Uh, you know, I think that that's that tends that's probably something that's more relevant now than than ever before. When you look at when you look at our own politics in in the United States right now. Sure. Well, I think too, you point out the import of uh, the story that you managed to spin around whatever your side is. You talk about uh, Elias is talking about. Uh, I think in the first book, Mamie Rila mm-hmm. used to tell stories of the Fae, and she was our tribe's Kahani, our tail spinner, and wove whole worlds with her voice with the flick of the hand and a tilt of her head. That kind of um, tail spinning, as it were, uh, is the, the way we define those divisions and ultimately set, our, set ourselves up for either to build something better or uh, make, make hay by tearing something down. Yeah, yeah. And again, in so much of this, what's again, what's funny to me is I didn't necessarily walk into Ember thinking, okay, I'm going to, you know, I want this message and I want this message and I want this message. I just, I told the story and the story happened to be of this very fraught world with a lot of problems and it happened to end up reflecting ours because that's sort of where I drew a lot of the conflict from is like, you know, like the the idea of child soldiers in the book Mm -hmm. comes from our world, Um, comes from what was happening, you know, in Liberia in the early 2000s and in the DRC in the mid and late 2000s. Um, And and all through history, you know, child soldiers have been a thing. It's, it's a problem now. And again, it's, it's like, I, it, I thought that that was an interesting thing to write about and that it would be fascinating to write from that perspective which is why we have Elias, who has been a, ch- a soldier since he was six years old. And it just happens to be the case that then that creates all sorts of complexities that I delve into as I'm telling the story of these characters and sort of what their world is putting them through. I think the uh, the vision of child soldiers is really interesting because as we meet the characters in this book, they're thoroughly familiar with it. That's a day-to-day operating system for for them. For us, it seems somewhat shocking and, and depressing. But run as it is through the military academy, uh, uh, Black Cliff, Black Cliff, uh, where these where a lot of the action um, takes place, um, is that this reminds us. You talked about interviewing some what from West Point. I'm guessing. <laughs> Black Cliff and West Point must share some features. You know, the young man I interviewed from West Point was great because he sort of helped me understand where the loyalty to one's school and sort of one's purpose comes from. Um, And it allowed me to kind of and and it, and it allowed me to give that kind of nobility to Elias um, mm-hmm. and to Helene to some degree because they, Helene in particular, is very loyal to her to her school and to her people. And in talking to to this 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 West Point cadet, I kind of had a, a better understanding of why he would go to West Point and how these words of sort of duty, honor, and country. I mean, he said he said to me, duty, honor, and country are not just words to me that is a way of life Um, and it was actually really admirable to hear him say that and to hear and he's such a young person to hear how committed he was you know to the point where he would go to this military academy and he would spend four years there and he would dedicate his life to the military 
it was really, really fascinating to me um, and very educational because I didn't know what West Point was like. I mean, he did talk to some degree about sort of some of the, you know, the the way you walk, the way your saber has to be, the way your boots have to be shined, you know, what you what stuff you might get punished for. That absolutely was was helpful in kind of the world building. But it was really the mentality. He was probably one of the most impressive 20 year olds I've ever met. And that like nobility, that was something that I was able to take from that interview and try to imbue, you know, my characters with it. I think uh, that one of the things that this book shares with the fantasy genre is it stops short of gunpowder. <laughs> and I'm wondering, do you think you'll ever, that these people will discover gunpowder? It's around. Mm-hmm. Um, in, I don't want to spoil the book, but oh. you see a little more of it in the very last scene of, of Ember. Mm-hmm. There, there might be some explosions. Um, <laughs> but the idea of guns um, mm-hmm. have, has not yet entered um, this world. I don't know if I will pull guns into it. I feel like that opens a whole different door, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure I'm willing to go through that it yet. It sure does. <laughs> you know, I think that maybe I'll spare them. For a couple of a couple a few few more decades from from guns, <laughs> I I think that uh, that also allows you to to lay clear um, the uh, lines of battle in a manner that it allows for more efficient storytelling too. If people can't blow each other up completely then they can have more personal interactions. Exactly. I think war is a little bit more complicated when you're fighting hand-to-hand. There was a book I read called On Killing by um, Lieutenant David Grossman, and it actually talked all about how war has changed over our history and how the fact that modern warfare doesn't really involve people face-to-face killing each other is probably a big part of the reason why it's so kind of okay um, to to kill so much in war. He had a really interesting example. I believe it was a battle in the Civil War that he talked about where apparently when when excavators, um, you know, and archaeologists, I guess, when they were looking at the weaponry, they found guns at the time, you know, to shoot a gun, you had to shoot it and then you had to like repack it and then you'd sh- you could shoot it again. So it took a couple minutes between each shot. And they found guns that had been repacked 15 times but never shot once because the men in battle didn't want to shoot their fellow man, especially these were their own countrymen. They didn't want to shoot them, but they didn't want their their fellow soldiers to think they were cowardly and not fighting. And so they would pretend to shoot because they didn't want to kill someone, and then they would repack the guns, and and then they would pretend to shoot again. And, and, and they they did that over and over again because they didn't want to kill their fellow because Because you're right there. I think that when you're faced with someone in your face and you have to kill them, that's entirely different than if you're dropping, you know, you're dropping a bomb on someone or you're shooting them from far away. Or by a drone. Or by a drone. <laughs> exactly, yeah. You create a really interesting supernat- uh, gallery of supernatural characters. One of the things I like about your supernatural characters is that they are characters. They have character. They're not just blind, eating, killing machines. And in particular, uh, we have something called Lord Nightbringer. Uh you have a lot of fun with that with that one. I do. Um, the Nightbringer is this character, one of the first characters I saw. Again, without spoiling, there is a scene in Torch that actually I had planned for eight years um, <laughs> because it was one of the first scenes in the book that I saw. And it, it has to do, you know, with the Nightbringer. And he he is a fully fleshed out, in my head, he's a fully fleshed out, fully realized character. He has... His, this whole life that took place and 
why he does things and what he is doing is as essential to the story as what Laia is doing or what Elias is doing. We just don't see it yet. Um, and oh, good. And that <laughs> is and that is something that. I really enjoy writing. I, you know, and that's sort of probably the the like megalomaniacal part of the writer personality, which is like, ha ha ha! I know all the secrets, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, it very much is, you know, knowing what this guy is up to and what's going on with him, and yet our characters do not, and um, and that's lots of fun. <laughs> you also create uh, the augers. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about this. Is a very interesting uh, kind of. Uh, subset of characters. Um, I can't say too much about the augers mm-hmm. because there's it's such a spoiler laden zone. Mm-hmm. It's like walking into like a minefield. Um, so um, I'm gonna stay closer to the edge, I guess. But the augers were originally inspired by um, you know the augers, um, mm-hmm. you know the augury, um, who was usually a woman um, in um, in ancient Rome, and you know emperors would would go to them and would get, you know, their, their fortunes told and they would make decisions about the, the, the fate of the empire based on what, you know, the, the main, you know, the, the sort of Oracle at Delphi is what they were called. I call them the augers in my book, but it was, they were called oracles then. Um, and they would go to the, this, these oracles and they would ask them these huge questions, you know, should I go to battle with so-and-so or not? And, and it was usually, it was always a woman, I believe would, would often give them an answer. And so, you know the 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 fate of of hundreds of thousands of people would sometimes rise and fall on these the the advice that these women would give and i thought that was such an interesting his, historical fact that i wanted to somehow work something similar into into uh the ember series thus the creation of the augers who can see the future but who maybe have a little bit more going on than <laughs> than we know uh not unlike a, an astrologer and our one of our former presidents. Oh, really? <laughs> That's right. right. Uh, you talked about uh, efreets and and uh, jins. Talk about uh, there's various you know definitions of those in, in a number of cultures. Did you just draw your creations from different cultures, or did you just kind of like? Listen to the edge, and then fill fill in the gins with powers that uh, suited your plot. I uh, I again sort of took the stories my mother used to tell me, and then kind of magnified what she would tell me. So she had told me that gin live in trees, that they have really bright eyes, that they're made of smokeless flame, but that they can change form. Wow, that's um, creepy. Yeah, very creepy. <laughs> very mother, creepy. Your mother was she was uh, was not going to give you a much of a break, was she? Yeah, no. She she told she was a great story. She is a great storyteller. Um, and when I was little, of course, you know, I would like half sort of beg for these stories and half be like, no, don't tell me anymore. Um, but you know, she'd tell me these stories, so I actually just took that and I ran with it. Um, and I tried to create anything that came to mind, anything that I thought was interesting. Um, you know, I always liked the idea of elemental, you know, supernatural creatures that are elemental in nature, thus the creation of the efforts, which, you know, there are efforts who live in caves, efforts who live in the sand, efforts who live in the water. There's ghouls who are these, you know, really nasty um, little creatures that like to kind of feed on people's pain and on blood and drive them crazy. And so, you know, that was something that I could just thought up you know I thought that that would be really really creepy and interesting for the story and you know thus thus sort of I work in that childhood you know the, those horror movies you know you know that I watched as a kid and like gremlins <laughs> and stuff you know um so it all it all ends up kind of coming back in in this and it's just whatever struck me at the time that's kind of what I ended up throwing in the book and sometimes it stuck and sometimes it didn't now you mentioned four books <clears throat> in in the series uh 
are you how far are along on this are you I am working on the third book right now do we know when it's going to come out? It is going to come out in 2018. Okay. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I don't. Uh, I don't uh, mess that up. Um, I think it'll. I th- I'm pretty. I'm pretty confident right now. But don't don't throw this back in my face if it, if I'm late. <laughs> uh, are they uh, asking to make this into a mini series yet? Um, it is optioned with Paramount, and the script is being written. Wow, by you? No, <laughs> no, not by me. Um, there are two gentlemen who uh, wrote the show Narcos, um, oh. and these two gentlemen are writing the script for An Ember in the Ashes. I've been speaking with Sabah Tahir. Her new novel is A Torch Against the Night. The first book in the series was An Ember in the Ashes. Do you have a name for the series? Um, right now, I just call it you know, the Ember series. I, I probably should think of an official name, <laughs> The Ember I? series, yeah. yeah, I guess so. All right, thank you for joining me, Sabah. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.